0: Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's vant slash decoder. Hello,
1: and welcome to Decoder. I'm Nilay Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my new podcast about big ideas and other problems. Today's episode is one I've wanted to do forever. I'm talking to Chris Best, co-founder and CEO of Substack. That's the subscription newsletter startup that's been taking the media industry by storm over the last few months. High profile journalists like Glenn Greenwald, Andrew Sullivan, and Anne Helen Peterson have left their jobs at traditional media companies to start paid newsletters on Substack. My friend Casey Newton recently left the verge and launched a Substack newsletter called Platformer, which is great, you should subscribe to it. The appeal is obvious and simple. Instead of working for a boss, you can work for yourself. Instead of having your salary determined by management, you can make more money just by getting more subscribers. And most importantly, instead of feeling like you're chasing clicks in an ad-supported business model, getting paid directly by subscribers theoretically incentivizes a different and better kind of journalism. I wanted to talk to Chris about all of it, and I also wanted to start at the start, It's so tempting to treat hot startups like they've already got it all figured out, and we just know that's not true. Nine years ago, The Verge itself was a media startup, and we have built a lot of things that worked and a lot of things that failed. So I did my best to ask Chris the most basic questions about running a media company that I could think of. How Substack makes money, how it's gonna make more money, How he plans to manage costs as Substack offers more and more services like editors and legal protection to writers. And of course, how he's thinking about content moderation, which every platform that works with independent creators has to deal with eventually. Two notes. You'll hear Chris talk about YC, that's Y Combinator, a very famous startup accelerator that's invested in Substack. And I asked him about building a moat, which is silly business slang for competitive advantages that are hard to copy. Okay. Chris Best, CEO of Substack. Here we go. Chris Best, you're the co-founder and CEO of Substack. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited for this. Of all of our first set of episodes, I think this is the one that I, I wanted to do before we even had a name for the show. Substack is having an absolute moment. There's a lot of very happy writers that have moved to Substack. Our own Casey Newton went from The Verge. She launched a Substack called Platformer, which I encourage people to subscribe to. Don't pay him, just subscribe to it. <laughs> That's my ex-boss, thread the needle. But it just seems like Substack as a whole is having a moment, and you're a new CEO. So just a lot to talk about with you. Give people a sense of just the short version of your background and how Substack started.
2: Yeah, so I'm sort of, programmer and technologists. Before Substack, I was a co-founder of a company called Kick Messenger. Uh, we made a you know messenger that's kind of like WhatsApp that went through a, a wild ride. After I left there, I was sort of taking some time off and figuring out what to, what to do with my life and seeing friends and family and all that stuff you never get to do when you're uh, starting a startup. And one of the things that had been on my mind for a long time was kind of a, a general dissatisfaction or, or or terror at the state of kind of like internet media ecosystem. Like I kind of had this idea that, you know, what you read really matters. It shapes who you are, how you see the world. And when the internet came along, it both made, was this magical revolutionary technology that made it instant and global and free to distribute writing. And like, there's more great things to read for free than ever before in history or that you could ever handle. And yet everything we read is is like dictated by the economics of social media platforms that have gobbled up all of our attention in kind of like the first phase of internet adoption. And we also killed a lot of the business models for traditional media, right? Like Craigslist killed the classifies, Facebook and Google took over the internet advertising industry. And so we now live in this like weird in-between time where like, Everything should be really great, and yet a lot of us feel like the things we read are kind of breaking our brains. And I was just complaining about this. I was just like, oh, woe is me. Social media is maybe bad in some ways. And I was talking to my friend Hamish, who's a writer, and he's like, first of all, you're not very original for saying that maybe social media is bad. This is not a this is not as hot a take as you think it is. Uh but also like, you know, if you're so smart, how could this even be different? Right? What is the alternative to having kind of like our hyper addictive Twitter feed determine everything we read. And we started talking about that. And the conclusion we came to is that it's not something you can fix from within those platforms, right? It's not like, you know, you can tweak the Twitter algorithm and make all of our online discourse lovely. Because the way that it works now stems from the underlying economics of how those platforms work. And the only way to change to make a real change is to like change the underlying laws of physics that apply, change the rules of the game, change how people are making money, uh, have a new and better business model for independent writing and make that thing work. And that's kind of, we started just started arguing about this basically. And we came to this really simple nugget of, of an idea where we're like, what if we just made a dead simple way for a writer to go independent, right? Start a, a blog, an email newsletter, have people subscribe directly to somebody you trust, you own your content, you own your audience. You know, Even a few thousand people paying five or 10 bucks a month turns into a real business very quickly. And it completely upends the economics of writing on the internet. And we were just like, we started talking about this and we couldn't talk ourselves out of it. Like I'm a sort of a whatever, a product nerd, I guess. And Hamish is a writer and sees things totally differently. And we just couldn't get the idea out of our heads. These past few months in particular have really accelerated for Substack. What sort of is the beginning of that? And is that tailed off or is it still accelerating? It's really funny because everyone everyone sort of has this impression that Substack has somehow leapt to prominence in the past few months. And to us, it just, it feels like we've been steadily working and growing for the past three years. And that's just, you know, we've been putting in that effort. We've been, you know, helping writers every way we can. And that kind of has been like plugging along and and... Growing geometrically, and you know the the COVID accelerated things a little bit, um, but didn't sort of fundamentally change it. And I think we've just we've just hit a size now where people are starting to notice.
1: And you you've obviously had the wave of, of bigger names come in. Is that was that a purposeful push or was it when they were ready, the platform happened to be there?
2: I, I mean, think it was both. I mean, we've always put a sort of an effort into going and manually trying to convince people that would do well on Substack to, to come and take the leap. And I think it's just, you know, we've always been going out and trying to recruit, recruit writers. And as the profile of the company grows, it's just gotten easier.
1: I ask every CEO about decision-making frameworks. You're a new CEO with a new kind of company and a new business model in this time
2: of change. What is your framework? How has it changed? What is my framework and how has it changed? One thing that might be interesting here that I think about as CEO is kind of like, what are you optimizing for? What do you need to optimize for, for the company to win? And I think you get, you know, this goes into like, what is the right culture for your company? Because, you know, there may be many valid company cultures uh, and it's just, it's, it's less like one is right and one is wrong. And maybe one is just better adapted to the thing you're trying to do. And so, I, like, for example, I think if you're if you're Apple, it's really important that you ship beautifully, finely tuned products that are right the first time and, you know, can make bold bets and whatever. There's some set of things that, like, if you're Apple, you need to be great at. And then if you're making a system that is involves people, like you're making something that is like a network of people that are interacting and the way that those people interact ends up being the value of the product, you have a different set of needs, which is why the right culture for Facebook is different than the right culture for Apple. And Apple's never been able to do social well, potentially. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think for us, the way that I think of that is we need to optimize for our rate of learning. We need to optimize, like we are creating this new model and we're helping a bunch of real human beings come together and and build things and you know, pay each other and create new types of careers and all all of this stuff and it's all sort of new and it's not clear exactly how it should work and so the the speed at which we learn over the long haul is going to determine whether we succeed or fail much more so than was any individual release perfect that time or or any other kind of concern. You said winning, what is winning for you? I think for us if we can if we can help bring this model, this different model for You know how people, how writers should get paid on the internet, and make it a massive part of sort of how we create internet culture. That would look like that's what we sort of strive to do, right? We want to help massively grow the size of the market for great writing, and so much more of it can be created.
1: You said speed of learning, which is great, and I I I like emotionally understand what you mean, but speed implies a rate. Like, how do you learn? Like it's a, it's a ridiculous question. I I understand, but what does it mean for you to have for you as a company, not you as a person, for you as a company to have learned something?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think of it as in order to learn, you have to have some opinion or have some idea. You have to get contact with reality, right? You have to have real people interacting with that idea, and like you know, have the sort of feel the road a little bit, like have something that people are actually trying to do the thing and see if it works. And then you have to, like, get that information back, both in sort of quantitative ways through data and in subjective ways through talking to people, and then draw the right conclusions from that, or at least draw useful conclusions from that and put it into the next iteration. So, you know, to me, you can't learn by sitting in the office and having long philosophical debates about what the right thing is. You learn by having a philosophical debate and then testing the philosophy and being like let's people are asking for this people want this thing we think this would help them we're going to try that we're going to see what what about it works and what doesn't work we're going to actually get that feedback from them and we're going to let that shape our thinking and the the length of time that it takes to do one of those cycles really influences your speed of learning because you know ideally every time you're actually going to change the next thing you build is going to be different Based on what you learn from that contact with reality. And so I sort of, we focus a lot on like tight iteration cycles, basically. What's the most surprising thing that you've learned? There's been a few good ones. One thing that was really counterintuitive is that on Substack, when you're a paid writer, when you're, when you have a subscription, you know, you've got a subscription uh, publication and you're asking people to come and pay, your intuition is very much, I'm going to take my best stuff and i'm going to put it behind the paywall because my paying readers, you know, need to be paying for something. And there is some truth to that like you do have to put stuff behind the paywall, but actually a good rule of thumb is you should take your best or at least your most accessible stuff and make a lot of it free even when you're paid. Bec- and that's it's it's nice because that's actually what a lot of writers want in the first place. A lot of writers want to reach the widest audience possible. but it also makes sense just from like a, a marketing perspective like that is your marketing funnel, right? People find out that you're a writer that they trust and has good ideas and they want to invest the time and money to like subscribe and pay. and the only way they're going to do that is if they get to read you know real good things that you've done. So kind of make your best stuff free is a counterintuitive thing that we didn't expect, and it, it's hard for, it, it, it runs counter to a lot of writer's intuition. Okay, let's talk about Substack itself. One thing I've noticed in the coverage, and, and even
1: the way that you're talking about it, it's very natural to skip to what we all think the end is going to be, right? There's a, Substack is massively successful, there's a new business model for journalism on the internet that will have ripple effects through the media industry. It's very tempting. I assure you, I did not re- fully resist the temptation. Those questions are at the bottom of this outline. But I don't really have a sense of your business. It doesn't feel like anyone's really pushed you on your business at this moment. And for I think for a startup, that's important. So I'm going to start with the most basic business question I can think of. What are Substack's assets and what are your liabilities?
2: What are our assets and what are our liabilities?
1: Yeah. Like for, for my company, right. We own a bunch of brands. We employ a lot. We're a traditional media company, Vox Media. We own a bunch of brands. We make a lot of stuff. We own that stuff. We monetize it in 12 different ways I'm told. And then we, you know, we franchise that stuff out in other places. Those are our assets. And then obviously we have to pay everybody and blah, blah, blah. In that structure, this is the most basic P and L profit and loss structure. What are your assets and liabilities?
2: I think our asset is the platform that we're creating, right? Because we, we don't, own media properties, like we're not a a media company. Our goal is not to sort of be a, a publisher that has a bunch of stuff. The whole the whole point of Substack is that as a writer you can use Substack to go independent. And like you know, we are spawning a million media companies. And so our asset is the the platform that people are using to do that and the set of uh, of tools that we've created to help writers go independent that they're willing to pay us for in the form of RevShare. And so some of those things are software. Some of them are like, it's a, it's a platform where you can publish. That's really easy. Like <laughs> our goal was like, you know, we wanted to make it so that you could type into this box, and if the things you type are good, you're going to get rich. As opposed to, you know, before Substack, there were still ways you could host a blog and charge money for it, but you just had to, like there's a lot of fiddling you had to do. We want to make that whole thing really simple. Some of that is software. Some of it is programs that we're running, and we've started running things. We have something called Substack Defender, uh, which is connecting uh, writers with legal help, because something we noticed was a lot of local, especially local journalists, were getting like bogus legal threats where it's like I'm doing some critical reporting of a local politician and because I'm the only one covering them they figure if they can shut me up they actually like won't <laughs> won't have <laughs> critical press and so I get this scary looking letter from a fancy lawyer that says you're not allowed to do you're not allowed to write about this and it's totally it's bullshit is frankly what it is and if you're an independent writer it's hard to fight that and so we we're like hey we as the as this platform we can help with this coordination problem right we can make it easy to get the legal resources to like effectively fight that and continue to do the the journalism and because we're in a position of of doing this for many many writers we can even like help fund it and pay for it in some cases because we will then help create a climate that is more favorable to the journalist in that thing, right? Where the the local politician doesn't think that they can shut someone up just by sending them a threatening thing because there's actually this Substack Defender program that's going to come and like vigorously oppose. And so you can't get away with like a bogus legal threat. That's sort of like a on the far end of the spectrum of not being all about software, but still providing a platform that creates value for writers that grows as the number of writers that use it grows. How many employees do you have? We have about 20 employees right
1: now. So I'm just asking you the most basic business questions I can think of. Who is your competition?
2: I think there's a few avenues of competition. Um, One is kind of like do-it-yourself. Like when we started, we looked at, you know, Ben Thompson, who already had a a great paid newsletter blog and what he'd done. And he sort of like had, uh, you know, WordPress and Memberful and Stripe and MailChimp. And you kind of like tie a bunch of services together. And build it yourself, and that's I think always a compelling option for people that have the the desire and ability to do that. Um, and if you're someone that really wants to like tinker with every part of your setup and like get you know be able to sort of have ultimate customizability, that's pretty compelling. And so for some set of people, I think that will always be a good option. And then you know Substack, the whole point is that it's one place that's kind of simple and makes it easy. There are more people that are that are uh, coming up to try to do this. Um, there's other like i think ghost added subscriptions after they saw what substack was doing i think uh squarespace is doing like a uh copying like the subscription or if not copying doing anything <laughs> that is along the lines of uh the subscription thing i think lots of other people will will try to like recreate the software tool part of it and then there's other platforms that are kind of you know you could say that that patreon is kind of a more diffuse thing that's like you know, a smaller part of the stack, but for a much wider variety of creators of which writers are one. I think that's, those are the th- ones I would kind of list off the top of my head. Yeah. I think that, that seems like the right list. I mean, ultimately what we're
1: talking about is people should pay for good things. Then there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of companies that are enabling that business model. So um, those feel like orthogonal competitors, maybe not direct competitors.
2: Do you feel like you have a good direct competitor? I'm not sure. Sh- I'm, if you don't think that those are direct, I'm not sure there's anybody that's more direct than than those. And I do think that there's, you know, I think we'll, we're going to see a lot more startups in this space because it is such a compelling, this model is incredibly powerful and like it's time has come basically. And so I think there's going to be a, a, a bunch, there's maybe our, our most direct competitor is one that we don't know about yet. Just some other basic stuff. I'm assuming you're, you're a startup,
1: you're pretty new. I'm assuming Substack is not yet profitable we're not profitable. Do you do you have a do you have a runway? When 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 do you think you will become profitable?
2: The way that I think about this is through the the YC framework of like default dead default alive, which is kind of like if you continue on the the track you're going, kind of growing revenue at the rate you're going and looking at your expenses, one of two things has to happen first, like either you're going to become profitable or you're going to die. And if you're default dead, you're actually in a very bad spot because unless you can raise money, the company's going to end and uh, that's a hard situation under which to raise money, and so our focus has always been on like being very comfortably default alive, which we currently are. Um, which is basically, you know, if we continue to grow at our current rate, we could we would become profitable quite quickly if we didn't grow expenses. And then it becomes a choice of like, given that we've got some money in the bank, do we want to grow expenses anyway because we think that investing in the product is going to pay off longer uh, returns in the long run. And what that means for me in practice is I want to be in a position where any money we've ever raised, we've treated it as the last money that we raise. And so if we we say, if we never raise money again, this company is going to work and we have like a healthy margin to do it. And under those circumstances, the only reason you ever raise money is because it's going to help you accelerate and you're you sort of in a position of, of strength.
1: That implies you're looking at becoming a, a strong, successful, independent company, which is
2: Great. That That is what I would like to imply.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I get it. You know, like we were talking the day after the Slack and Salesforce deal was announced. And they're like, I just have a level of sadness about it that another great independent company went away. So if that's where you're going, that's great. But there are obviously always rumors. There was a rumor about Twitter acquiring Substack a while ago. And then you, you
2: shot it down in, immediately. Where did that come from? I feel like somebody at the Times printed that. And then Hamish just did a tweet being like, this isn't going to happen. And it was, it was good. We, I mean, we think that if we sold Substack, the chances that we could do the thing that we set out to do would be greatly diminished, right? Like sometimes acquisitions work out really well and it's great, but the, as you know, by far the rule is it kills the, it kills the baby. <laughs> and we're really attached to our baby and we think that it can be a strong independent company. And so we're kind of like putting all of our our efforts into that. And we basically have no intention to sell.
1: So as we were talking about you know, what your assets are, you talked a lot about your platform. You talked a lot about growing it, investing into it as, as you can in a way that's sustainable. One thing that has always struck me about Substack, which I think is a little bit misunderstood, is that the writers and their distribution lists that use Substack, they're not among your assets, right? They can just leave, and they can take their lists with with them. Yes, absolutely that is somewhat precarious. They're they're ultimately the value of
2: the platform, right? How are you thinking about managing that? This is actually a key part of how we think about building the company, like back to that idea of, you know, how do you create a better business model on the internet and what does that actually look like? And we're big believers in the idea that you can't really say, you know, we are going to, over the long run, be really virtuous and you know, do things that like aren't great for the business, but are kind of good because we we think they're good. It's possible to do that, but it's not actually a very good strategy to accomplish good things in the world as a, as a company. And so what we want to do instead is construct our business model in such a way that in order to be successful, we kind of have to do the right thing, that we're as aligned as possible with readers and writers. And, you know, one of the ways that we do that is we set up like the, the way that our payments work it's like it's free to publish for any size and then once you start charging we take a percent and so we only make money when you make money so there's no like you know there's no multi-level marketing thing where like we're making a bunch of money off a writer who believes they're gonna make money but but doesn't another way we do that is we just you know we 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 mean it when we say we're helping writers go independent and they own their content and they own their you know their their contact point with their audience which means that you can leave right like if you're a writer and you build up your your following and your subscriber base on Substack, like you 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 can take it away, which in turn means that we have to provide value for you to stay and we can't treat you badly or it's actually not going to help us. Uh,
1: writers, I, I manage a few. I know a few who are on Substack. Writers, as a rule, are a pretty finicky bunch. Yep. They require a lot of care. Usually a software company does not spend a lot of money on customer service, on dealing with a writer who's freaking out, on legal defender programs how are you thinking about growing that cost? Because that cost does not scale the way that software scales. You ship one feature, you pay the cost to engineer that feature once, and you get value out of it again and again and again. You know, A lawyer is a pretty fixed cost that you just have to keep adding more lawyers.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it it is and it isn't. And, and part of the answer there is, is just, yeah, we're, we don't consider ourselves only a software company, right? We're not only making uh, a software tool that Effortlessly scales. We're trying to create all of these programs that give a writer everything they need to go independent, and some of those do just like the cost scale up, and we're going to have to find a scalable, you know, a scalable way uh, to pay for that stuff. Fortunately, by the time you're a very successful writer on Substack, it's like a hell of a business, and so there's a lot of there's like there's a real business model that can come in and and back some of these things you need, as opposed to other platforms that kind of see the content creators as like their free labor and that it's like a cost center to be kind of minimized. We're like, oh, geez, we're making 10% of this very large amount of, of money this writer's making. We better be spending a good fraction of that on things that are adding a lot of value for them um, because that's, you know, again, we've put ourselves in a position where that's the thing that's going to gonna help us succeed. That said, some of these things scale in ways that you, you wouldn't always expect to begin with, right? So for example, Substack Defender, you know, if if every time anybody ever gets, you know, if if people continue to get legal threats at the same rate and we have to hire a lawyer for each of them, yes, that's bad scaling. But there is an effect where if we can go to bat very vigorously and very publicly for a few people that are the subject of bogus legal threats, and we can kind of like help publicize that we're there as a backstop for writers and that these kinds of threats are actually quite costly to make, that can scale up because people overall will be less likely to make those threats to begin with. That no, I
1: just, as a person who gets those letters and vigorously defends them, no defamation attorneys do not say we shouldn't send the letter because they'll defend it. I I promise like that. I just promise you what you're going to get is you've got some rich VCs backing your company. You've got a lot of money in the bank. You've got some famous names. The target just, I, my experience is the target just gets bigger. I'm very curious to see if it plays out the way that you think it will, but the New York Times does not get less letters. It gets more over time, right? The. The Verge has gotten more letters over time as we've gotten more prominent and more, more defensive of ourselves.
2: Yeah, I imagine it gets more over time. It'd be interesting to know if it gets more per subscriber over time. Oh, that's interesting. Like I imagine there must be some level of there must be some level of uh, where there where it's like I'm some podunk attorney. I either just realize that it's not worth my time, or I guess you get the you get the cranks anyway. But you can find <laughs> some way to deal with the cranks at scale. I want to catch up with you over time as Substack grows. So the next time we talk in
1: a few months, I. In a few months, I'll I'll have aged ten years. I'll be yeah. like huddling under a blanket. Ah, you're you're the CEO. Like that's that's the <laughs> that's the price of success. Um, you've been paying you've been paying writers to come on. The, those have been advances, right? You're not just throwing people bonus checks.
2: Yeah, we've done we've we've experimented with like a handful of of things, and the the basically the premise with all of them is it's like a way to help kickstart your independence, and so it's like an advance or a some deal where it's like yeah, we've been we've been experimenting with stuff like that, and it's always. You end up in the same place. You you're, you own your audience. You own your content. You have a direct subscription relationship.
1: And if, if they don't pay back the advance, you're not going to go chase them down for it. This is a question I hear from writers all the time.
2: Yeah, right. The way that it works, the way that when we... There's been a few things we've tried specifically the advances it's basically like yeah we'll we'll like sh- help shoulder some of the risk and so if you do the thing for like the period of time of the advance even if you don't make the money back you don't owe us the money back the only way you owe it back is if you like quit before the end of the period right if you like take a book advance and don't write the books off then you'll end up owing some part of that back
1: between the sort of
2: advances
1: to get started and grow you you've offered some people ability to buy health insurance out of out of a pool like you you've made it easier to do things that you generally need a company to do. And then you have Defender, the, the legal program you've mentioned several times. That feels like the beginning of an, the infrastructure of a traditional media company, right? You take a job at The Verge, we pay you a salary, you get health insurance. There's a whole lot of, law- I, <laughs> the lawyer thing is very funny to me. We have a lot of lawyers. And we we help you publish in a great platform. Where does that infrastructure stop for you?
2: Where does that infrastructure stop for
1: us? Like so, I, And I think you, even with some folks, Uh, And Helen Peterson said she was getting an editor from you guys, right? Like the infrastructure of journalism is starting to appear inside of Substack. Yeah. Like where, where does it stop? Where do you stop being a media company and say, we're just a platform or where do you
2: become just a full on media company? Our goal is like the, for us, like making it possible for a writer to go independent is is the point. And a lot of, some of the problems that prevent a writer from going independent are like, I don't have a good piece of software to do this, but some of it are, are those things, right? It used to be, harder to go independent because you had to work at a company to figure out how to defend bogus legal claims, or you had to work at a company in order to figure out how you're going to get your family health care. And those became barriers where even if you wanted to go independent and strike on your own, you were like prevented from doing it. And Substack, the platform, our mission is to basically remove those barriers, to make it so that you can go independent and still... Not be said the subject of bogus legal threats, and we don't we don't see those in as being contradictory at all. We see those as being, you know, basically how can we make it possible for more and more people to go independent, even if they are human beings who need health care, even if they don't have a big savings that they can use to draw down, even if even if all of these things, if they want to do it, you know, that's what they choose for themselves, and they have the capacity to do it. And of an audience, we want to remove every barrier uh, to doing it, and that's what our platform exists to do.
1: I was looking at the blog post you all wrote about the Defender legal program. And it's a big one, right? In terms of the risk of going independent, there's I need some cash in the bank before my revenue goes up. There's I've got a family and I need health insurance. Those are the reasons people have jobs. I'm a writer and I might irritate some big corporation or some spiky executive and they're going to sue. Like, hopefully that's not a manageable risk for any individual as far as I know. Maybe if you're very wealthy. So I, I just, I'm just i just going to read this to you because I have some questions about it. So the Legal Defender Program is for writers with paid newsletters who publish work that may attract unreasonable legal pressure, such as abuse of copyright laws, assault on First Amendment rights, and spurious defamation claims. Upon acceptance of the program, writers can use a form to request help for specific cases. Substack will make the ultimate choice on who is accepted in the program and which cases to support. Uh, once a case is taken on by a program's lawyer, Substack at our discretion will cover fees up to a million. In exceptional cases, we may cover even more. There's a lot of discretion for Substack in that program. Sure. Like an awful lot of discretion. Like you're not even you can get you can get rejected from the program as a whole. You can get accepted and have your case turned down. You can be accepted and run them to the million dollar limit and then be out of money and be on your like there's just a, a bunch of outs there for Substack as a company. If I was doing something very risky, I would say, I don't, I don't know if I can depend on this. It's there, but it's not there in a way that I would personally rely on it if I'm
2: doing something particularly risky. Is that a conversation you've been having? Yeah. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that this is kind of like the early first iteration of the program. And while our, to me, the end goal is to, is to make this stuff available to as many people as as physically possible. Um, the way that we usually start is we start with like a, a much smaller version of that, right? Where it's kind of like, we'll make it opt-in or we'll make it application only for a few people and we'll figure out how to do it. And then we'll kind of expand it over time. With these services in general, our goal is to make it as scalable as possible and make the economics of it work at scale um, in such a way that it's like available to anybody who wants it. And it, it, might, it may be a case where like, You know, some people have to like in the in the eventual version of the of the program, maybe it's like available for purchase for some people that that want to, you know, you know, don't already have a large successful thing, but want to buy into it. Um, It's less about, you know, we are necessarily going to like bankroll everybody's legal thing and more like we want to reduce the friction to the lowest possible amount. Um, So if you are just a writer, you want to go independent, you don't know how to figure out all of the navigate, all this stuff about getting a defamation lawyer or a editor or whatever, we kind of give you like this smooth rail to do it. What's the criteria for acceptance into the program? Right now it's, we've been just doing it on like a case by case basis of people that we think are, are likely to be subject to a lot of these books. Like really the thing that we set out to do in the very first version is just like, we had a couple of people who had just gotten absolutely egregious nonsense bullshit threats. And we were like, we would just love in these cases to like cover this stuff because it's like so ridiculous. And so we started out kind of like trying to handle like a couple of those people that are local journalists, stuff like that. Um, so people that are like, obviously doing sort of like totally legit journalism and are the subject of totally nonsense threats. It's just like the clearest case where we can help at the, at the outset. I would only push back on you there
1: because we live in the time that we live in and say that the phrase obviously legit journalism is wildly up for debate. Sure. So what is your criteria for obviously
2: legit journalism? I mean, in this case, it's really like sort of we know and we see it. And it's it's in practice, it's been like, I'm a local journalist that's writing something about the corruption of a local politician or a local business person that's of clear public interests and is like, you know, well supported and uh, this kind of thing.
1: So you have like editors who are like looking at the work and evaluating who's, who's making the decision
2: in the earliest iterations of the program. It's basically some legal counsel we have and, and us, the founders.
1: And then once people are in the program, how do you decide what cases to take? Have you had, have you had cases yet? Or is it mostly just letters?
2: It's yeah, it's mostly just been, it's mostly just been these kind of nonsense things.
1: Um, so how do you, so someone gets a letter, they say, help me out. You dispatch a lawyer to send a letter back and say, go away. Yeah. How many times has that happened? I don't have that at the tip of my tongue. Have you actually had a lawsuit through this program yet? No. And and then the mechanics of it are you've just hired outside counsel, right? Yeah, we have some some counsel work. The lawyers aren't in house, right? So one question I have, which is again, this is just I can't help it. I'm an editor. I I like I run a very similar kind of business. I can hold things from being published right before they go through defamation review. So every feature that we've published where we think there's a risk. We, we hit stop. Our in-house counsel reads it. Right. We make our changes to make sure we're totally airtight. If we think it's even more controversial, we will have outside counsel, our outside First Amendment counsel read it. And then, you know, we'll, we'll like, we'll make sure. But we don't publish until then. Right. You cannot tell a Substack writer not to publish. Right. Right. You're, you're just, you're starting out behind the eight ball.
2: Well, and. It- I mean, the the point of independence is we can't tell them what to publish and what not to publish, and ultimately it's their content, and it means that they're the ones taking the risk, right? And so we want to for the people who are like, I think this is a risk, and I want some, I want some help with that. We want to give them the tools they need, but ultimately that's what being independent means here. It's their, it's their, it's their, you know, media company basically. It's their, it's their thing. I I just want to keep
1: pushing it because. The Defender program, it, it, you've talked about it a lot, is I think you're rightfully very proud of it, right? There are not a lot of other platforms that say we will engage defamation counsel on your behalf. So that is very interesting. But the mechanics of you've published it,
2: but for one sentence. Oh, no. Right? Wait, so, okay. So we do we – do. Part of the Defender program is handling the letters, but part of it is also once you're accepted, you can ask for like pre-publication review on stuff. So if you're like, hey, I'm doing this thing, but I like I'm worried that I've, I'm treading into some ground here and I'd like to have someone give me some legal advice on whether this is legit or not, because I'm, you know, I'm yeah deciding whether to take the risk of publishing this. Um, that's that is something that we provide as well. OK. And who bears is that your cost or is that the writer's cost? As we scale the program, that will probably evolve, basically. Right now, I think we're we're paying for a chunk of it for people that are accepted just as we're in the early stages. Yeah. That's I mean, that,
1: that's one of those things where again, I feel like I'm gonna want to talk to you over time. Yeah. Like, these things are obviously evolving, and there's a reason I'm asking what's what to me feel like the simplest question. Like who pays for it, right? Is the simplest possible question. But I'm curious how that will grow because I know sure. what our I know what our cross structure looks like. And I think you you have a new business model and your cost structure. Could, it, there's a world in which it involves to look exactly like ours, right? It looks like a
2: media company's cost structure, but I don't think that's your goal. Yeah, I think it's more likely that there will be many publications on Substack that are kind of similar to uh, a media company. And there are pieces that are going to be the same and you need, you know, you need writers and you need things, but there are pieces that could be pulled out into the platform, right? Like you don't have to build all of your own software, um, because we have this great platform that you can use. you know maybe you maybe you don't have to build your legal team or you don't have to build your legal team until much later because we have this turnkey thing that you can you know either use for free or, or pay a bit to use that that gets you to that next stage and lowers the barrier of, of becoming one of these things.
1: So that kind of leads me into my next theme here, which is just how you give tools to creators. And I, I have to tell I have a lot of questions about that. We've seen we've seen other creator platforms, YouTube, Instagram, they all kind of follow a trajectory. But when I went and asked a bunch of people on Substack, what do you want me to ask Chris best? By far, and I was not expecting this, by far the number one thing they asked for was design customization. Hmm. Uh, one person specifically asked me, it told me to ask you when you will support drop caps. Interesting. When will you support drop caps? Do you, a, do you have a, is that on the roadmap?
2: I didn't even consider drop caps, but now that you've said it, I love that idea
1: put it to the top of the trail, man let's, <laughs> let's get it done so that design customization right you've rolled out some web tools people can have custom urls it feels like you're going beyond newsletters into just publication territory right we're going to so on the on the scale of things uh, wordpress and squarespace are over here and and medium is all the way over there where do you think substack falls
2: um, i think it's it's somewhere in between naturally and Newsletters has always been kind of a shorthand for us. Like the thing that's magical about a newsletter is that it is this thing where you have a direct, you know, it's the one place you can have a direct relationship with your readers and, you know, get a push notification onto their home screen basically without having to go through like the Facebook algorithm and without having to get them to download an app. And that's sort of why email newsletters become this this important thing. Our goal, and so customization is definitely on our roadmap. It's something that we're very excited about. And our goal with it is basically to let you customize as much as we possibly can while keeping our core principle of basically being really easy to use for a writer, where you don't have to be like a developer, you don't have to write a bunch of code, you don't have to, you know, wrangle a bunch of different software together to make the thing work. And so as much customization as we can give you that makes it completely your brand, completely feel your stuff without having to make you into like managing your own software platform, like that's basically where we would want to go over time. Do
1: you think that that stuff needs, I, I hear what you're saying about newsletters being a shorthand, and I think they work for a reason, right? You can escape the distribution funnels of social networks. But as you become more of a web property, you do start to think about things like search engines and discoverability and social media. Are you envisioning a world in which your writers have built big web properties and they start asking you for the tools to do the other things, or you've created the incentive
2: to do the, the social media marketing that you you've started in opposition to the social media marketing we started in up like i think the the thing that we're in opposition to is having a business model that primarily depends on clicks or eyeballs or engagement um because We think that what that does is creates this sort of perverse incentive. And over time, and with an efficient enough market, it kind of creates this race to the bottom where everybody is like trying to fight to get the incremental eyeball from the algorithm. And you end up creating stuff that's not the, the the best work that you set out to do. And it's not necessarily the thing the reader would choose for themselves if they were stepping back and making an informed choice. But it is the, it might still be the thing that they click on in their feed because that's what it's optimizing for. Um, so, you know, making something, uh, making a post that performs well when people share it on social media is definitely not in opposition to our... Strategy like that's something that we do do for people like we want that to work well, right? When you write public stuff on Substack, part of the benefit is that it it can spread widely and it can be like the the place that people find out about your little you know media startup media empire that you're
1: creating. (laughs) Well, I mean, right now the sort of the best marketing for Substack is if you like these tweets. Have you thought about paying me for longer tweets? I read in Columbia Journalism Review that you have a, a score for Twitter engagement that drives whether you offer people in advance is twitter still your biggest and best funnel it is a major one yeah what's your best one um direct (laughs) really yeah because that leads into the question of like discovery you have a leaderboard it seems like you're reticent to build discovery features because that leads to gaming the discovery features we've seen that over and over and over again what's what's your plan there or is it to just hold back and say we just want a lot of creators here
2: I think we can and should do discovery, and it's just important for us to do it in a way that takes advantage of the of the model that we have and of the fundamental promise of Substack, right? Because the the whole the whole value of Substack is the direct relationship between readers and writers, and so if we if we did discovery in some cheap way that might be like you know what would work best on YouTube, it would be easy for us to like kind of blindly violate that and like kill the thing that makes Substack good. Whereas if we can keep that relationship, if we can like respect that relationship, but still provide a way where again, being on Substack and using the Substack platform gives me a benefit as a writer that accrues and grows as more and more writers and more and more readers join the platform as a whole, where people, more people, more, more readers can find my work, fall in love with me as a writer, and then decide that there's, you know, I'm someone they want sort of in their media diet to the point where they're willing to pay me. That's kind of like a whole wholly good thing and it's something we're definitely excited to do. And we have some exciting stuff coming up along those lines. <laughs> You're not going to break some news here? You're not going to tell me when, what kind of discovery are you looking at? What kind of discovery are you looking at? Here's one thing that I, that I do think is that, again, speaking of newsletters being a sort of a, a shorthand for a thing, something that I really miss is proper reader apps, proper RSS readers. I think the death of Google Reader was kind of like a big, sad thing. Yes. And something that we think about a lot is, you know, readers tell us, Hey, I've, I'm subscribed to six different Substacks now, and it kind of sucks that they're, they're like I want to read them all, and it kind of sucks that they're like in my email inbox along with all my other stuff. And you know, email presents a whole host of things. Um, and wouldn't it be nice if there was one place where I could go and see all of my all of my things, all of these direct connections that I have and like that I'm that I'm paying for in many cases. Uh, and that's something that we're like keenly interested in. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, I'll ask Chris
1: about content moderation on Substack.
0: Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio? Designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Now, back to the debate. Designers, you can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas, or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. If no-code's your thing, or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features, like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs, Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers, search Wix Studio and find out for yourself.
1: All right, we're back with Decoder. It was important for me to talk to Chris about content moderation on Substack, and that means we have to talk about Section 230. If you're not familiar with Section 230, it's the law in the United States that says platforms aren't liable for what their users publish. It is very controversial, even though it is remarkably simple. And I feel like it's important to ask every platform CEO how they feel about it. So I did. I have to ask you about content moderation. Yep. You build the platform, you bring on the writers, you defend them from lawsuits, the next thing that every platform has to deal with, and ideally you've started thinking about this from the start, is content moderation. We just see it over and over again. You have attracted a wide swath of writers. I would say the ones you've gotten the most attention for are fairly controversial. You're Glenn Greenwald, you're Andrew Sullivan. Do you currently have a content
2: moderation policy in place? Yeah, we do have we do have a set of content rules. In general, I do think this is, it's absolutely a, a real thing and it's something that we contend with and think about what the right way to do this is. We do have a major advantage over other people that struggle with that just because of how Substack works, because it's a a thing where you have, you know, you as a reader are directly up, you're subscribing to somebody, right? You're going there and saying, I want to subscribe to your newsletter. I'm going to get your stuff. I'm going to see it. If you don't like the stuff that you're seeing there, you have this really good remedy, which is like hit the unsubscribe button. And so a lot of the, a lot of the worst problems that content moderation addresses on other platforms is like the spread of content that is bad because I'm basically your algorithmic feed is serving as an editor, whether you think of it that way or not. And it's like, I'm getting bad crap in my Facebook feed because some uncle of mine liked it or because it's getting engagement and like that problem doesn't exist on Substack in the same way. And so while there are, you know, categories of, of things that are like, you know, we're still like, even if you're just off in your own little world sending newsletters to people that are, are are willing for it, we're still not going to allow that on the platform. Like those things exist. There's things that are illegal. What's what's on the list? i pull up the list. But it's like, you know, I think we're like pornography, super illegal stuff. There's like a, a short list of like really tightly construed things. In general, we're very pro freedom of the press and extending that that freedom to as many writers as possible. And because the model works the way it does, we can be, you know, quite strong on that, while still, of course, having, you know, having a basic policy that is isn't, you know, doesn't allow absolutely everything. Who runs your content moderation team? Um right now it's it's the founders.
1: Are you thinking about growing that team, hiring ahead of policy, all the all the things that platforms have to do? I'm sure eventually. <laughs> <laughs> the the day we are talking, there's a lot of noise about reforming section two thirty in the world yet again. Have you had a chance to consider what is your policy on on two thirty reform?
2: I I don't know I'm not a lawyer I don't know about this deeply but my impression is it would be a pretty big disaster if it got majorly changed to me the, the test case of this is like Wikipedia like if there was if we're going to change the law in a way that would kill Wikipedia I think that would be a really bad idea um, yeah and would destroy a lot of a lot of what we take to be good on the internet that's sort of my take on it so the, the reason I ask
1: um not just because it is making another round of exhausting headlines, which it is. A long time ago, I interviewed Brad Smith from Microsoft, chief of legal counsel at Microsoft. And I interviewed him right after Microsoft had kicked Gab, which is a social media platform that extremists use a lot. Microsoft had kicked Gab off of Azure, their cloud service. And you don't think of Azure as having a a content moderation policy. Right. But it turns out they do. And it turns out it got invoked. And it turns out they kicked an entire service off of their platform. Again, I think that's one end of the spectrum. Uh, way on the other end is what you've been describing with Facebook, right? We're going we're gonna to turn down the crazy uncles. Where on that spectrum do you think your moderation efforts have to lie?
2: Um, I think closer closer to the Azure end. Not necessarily all the way, um, but we, you know, again, because of the nature of how the network works and the fact that we're a service for writers who are sometimes incendiary and controversial, and, and we think that that's like an important property and an important thing to enable... You know, we want to have a really strong default of of allowing people to exercise their freedom of the press. And I'm not sure I'm totally, you, may, you probably know more about this than I do, but my understanding of Section 230 is basically allows you to do some content moderation without giving up your status as a platform that is not liable for the for the things on it. And so I think one, if that's the case, if you changed it dramatically, what you might end up doing is making it impossible for Azure to kick Gab off. Because if they did that, then they would become liable for all of their things. Maybe I'm confused about that. You explain it to me. No, it's, it's the other way around.
1: Right? You would make it, f- you would turn up the amount of moderation. The conversation on Facebook and Twitter is extremely unsophisticated, but in, the, in sort of the world that we're in, it's the most sophisticated because we talk about it the most. On the infrastructure size, Cloudflare, Azure, AWS, like we haven't had a lot of those conversations, but they, those platforms have taken moderation decisions. And it sounds like if you want to be closer to them, the amount of work you're doing building the infrastructure for journalism takes you away from it, right? Like AWS doesn't have a legal defender program, right? It, it, it's just servers in a, in a place and you can sign up for them and off, off you go, but they still moderate. Whereas I, as you build, was you have editors, right? You're, you have editors supporting your writers. You have lawyers. You have some design feed. It sounds like drop caps are coming tomorrow. Drop caps are subject to strict moderation rules. <laughs> <laughs> but like that stuff, it winds you towards a place where people will ask you to moderate in a way that it is not natural to ask AWS to moderate, regardless of the law right? Like the, like the law is pretty simple. The law is the platforms can do what they want. They have First Amendment rights and they can have whoever they want on them. But your moral obligation, as you do more things for writers, what your perceived moral obligation does increase. So I'm, I'm wondering where where you think the line is before you've offered so many services to writers that you're still saying, we're, we're, we're still just more like Azure. We're MailChimp, right? Like we
2: don't ask these things of MailChimp. I wonder if we do ask those things in MailChimp. I mean, I think, listen, we take a pretty strong stance that we, you know, we want to p- promote freedom of the press and extend it to as many people as possible. And, you know, that itself is a, you know, that's not coming from a political nowhere. Like, that's a belief that we we hold. And I think that that's something that that continues, even if we're, you know, like, do we have an obligation to, like, let somebody publish something we don't like, but they should, we should withhold health, like d- don't let them buy health care. Like that doesn't doesn't totally make sense to me. And I think that w- we believe in the principle that like people should have wide freedom of expression and that's like actually a, a, a good thing. One thing that I think is gets lost in this debate is like the reason that Facebook has to moderate so hard to like avoid things turning into a dumpster fire or in an attempt to avoid things turning into a dumpster fire is because the model... They have the whole model that they have pulls them in a direction where things are like, you know, we have words in the lexicon like hell site and doom scrolling for a reason. right? <laughs> the reason that Facebook is bad is not that they just haven't been moderating enough and that just doing some like more heavy handed moderating will like suddenly make it into a great place. It's that you have a model, you have a whole incentive structure that's pulling things in a bad direction. And as we see increased, increased moderation, I think what we're going to end up with is the worst of both worlds. We're going to end up with still a hell site and now a very censorious hell site that sees it as its job to kind of shape what what opinions and what voices are acceptable. I'm not sure that's anybody's idea of of a of a great solution, and I don't think that looking at Facebook and saying, "Hey, Facebook is is doing some bad things, and therefore we need to like, you know, push everyone into more censorship" is the right the right solution to that problem. One of the questions on my list was, "How are you going to break my heart?" I feel like I should ask that to every CEO. "How are you going to break my heart?" "How am I going to break your heart?" I'm not sure if we're actually going to do drop caps soon. Okay.
1: Uh, well, so here, as I wrote that question, here here was the nightmare scenario for you that I. would I came up with. And maybe it's not true, but I'm curious for your thought on it. Substack is constructed right now as kind of a long tail business, right? You have a lot of writers. You get 10% of all their money. You're going to make a lot of money. If you have a lot of volume, that's great. There's another world in which you have one or two writers who generate all of your revenue. And that long tail doesn't generate anything meaningful. And then your number one writer does something and people say, hey, you got to kick him off your platform, right? And you can see that coming. With some of the names on your platform, that day is coming for you. What happens when you have to make a moderation decision that threatens your revenue that directly?
2: I mean, I think first of all, you know, I, in order to, to be in the business we're in and to realize the vision that we're working towards, yes, people are going to come at us and ask us to remove people that we're going to have no intention of removing. And we're going to have to just be comfortable with that. Um, And, you know, we'll have a, you know, whatever our content moderation policy is, it could be as restrictive as you like, and there'll still be. People on there that people are are asking to remove. One thing that's interesting is we we don't have any one writer that's you know some huge fraction of our revenue. Although we do have you know there's concentration among the top the top people the top ten people on Substack make ten million dollars a year collectively. Over time we actually see the long tail as being very valuable to the business, um, not because they're making all the money right now, but if the Substack model succeeds the way we think it is, all the people that are making the majority of money in this happy path. Five years down the road where we're massively successful. A lot of those people aren't going to be people who were famous writers today, right? Like SubSentic is a great place if you're a famous writer today, but it's also a place where you can go from obscurity and build something up and create a viable business out of nothing. And so the long tail for us is not just a cost center of like, oh, well, it's they're not making us any money, but we'll like help them out to be nice, although we appreciate getting to be nice. The long tail is there because a lot of those people who are in the long tail. A year, two years, three years from now, are going to be massively successful writers, and we have to give them a path to go there all the way. And so we, I see it as as an obligation that we have to defend the right of people, these people, to the freedom of the, their freedom of the press, not just for the top earners, but for the long tail as well. Like I don't want to be in a world where we're like, oh well, we'll you know we'll kick you off the platform because you're not making us a lot of money. That shouldn't enter into it. We should have a you know we should have a a, a broad swath that lets us. That we apply fairly consistently.
1: That connects into discovery in this Google Reader app you're building, right, where you can promote some of those writers.
2: Yeah, or where or either where we can promote it, or where it's possible for the promotion to happen, like through the network of people that we're already trusting, right? Something that we're already seeing is writers promoting each other, right, like say, linking out to each other's newsletters, doing guest posts, doing cross deals, stuff like this. That's something we're seeing on the platform, and that's that's the thing that we feel most bullish about is. I get my recommendations from human beings that I've already decided to trust who specifically decided to recommend something to me. Like that's the the most powerful model that we have. And so building the platform where everyone can do that more is is kind of the most exciting version of that to us. So we only have a few minutes left. My
1: next set of questions are about growth and I'm looking at them and they're lightning round questions. So we're going to do a lightning round on growth. How many newsletters do you read every day? Probably like 10. How many do you pay for? Probably five. Is there a limit, an upper bound to how many newsletters you think an individual will subscribe to and pay for? Yes. What's that? What's the upper bound?
2: Uh, higher than
1: you would expect. This is like, I'm getting into like a proprietary information at Substack, right? A little bit,
2: yeah. Higher than you expect. Is it higher than 10? It's higher than you expect and it, it varies per person, right? A lot of people will never pay for any newsletter. A lot of people will pay for one to three. Some people will pay for a bunch. Some people will pay a great deal for one that they value a lot.
1: Is that spend from a consumer? Is that... Is that out of the same pool, do you think, is the money they spend on Netflix and Disney Plus and
2: whatever else? Or is that a different pool? I don't know if it's the same pool, but it's not the same. It's not the exact same motivation. On Substack, you're not paying for content. And sometimes people will pay more for one writer uh, for a weekly newsletter than they'll pay for all of Netflix. Because you're not paying to get more email. You're paying to have this trusted... Voice and to help that, you know, to have that access to that writer to help you curate your worldview and your diet and get something that you can't get anywhere else. It's like the signal to noise ratio is the thing you're paying for. The most
1: obvious thing people say to me about growth for Substack is they're eventually going to do bundles. It's obvious they've got to do
2: bundles. Pay us 15 bucks a month, you get the four newsletters you want. Are you going to do bundles? I think it's very likely that we do bundles. If we do bundles, it will be bottom up and not top down. So it'll be writers choosing to bundle themselves rather than us coming and somehow forcing a bundle on people. How are you going to manage the payment split if writers choose to bundle? I don't
1: know. Fairly. Fairly. All right, I'll take it. I mean, <laughs> you got you to learning, learning at speed, right? As you build the creator tools, bundles, apps, those things are a moat, right? They're a moat that can help growth. Moats are kind of creator unfriendly. The joke I always tell about YouTube and Instagram is like the inflection point of every creator's journey on YouTube is the video that they make about how mad they are at YouTube, right? It's just every everyone does it, it, all, it happens to all of them. As you build those tools and kind of make those walls and it feels like people are working for Substack or on Substack and there's not a good competitor
2: platform, how are you gonna manage the tension with creators? I hope that by setting up our business model in a way that aligns readers and writers and Substack, we've, that will help with that a great deal, right? By the time that you're paying Substack, a lot of money. It's because you're making ten times that much money, and you know that gives us a lot of that combined with the fact that you can leave when you want to gives us a lot of incentive to to make the platform a good experience for you. And so, I don't think that it's necessarily the case that we, the platform, will be at odds with the creators. I think that's true on YouTube because the creators are not the creators are not how YouTube makes money, right? They're not the, they're not the customer, um, because Substack is readers who are paying for writers and we're taking, you know, taking a percentage of that, we are much more aligned with actual success. There are much fewer forces that are kind of making us have business reasons to do nefarious things that will screw writers over. At least that's how we want to set it up. All right. Last question. What's the next thing we should look for from Substack? Check out the reader beta when it lands. Ooh, I
1: like it. All right, Chris, that was really great. I came at you to answer the questions. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Chris for taking the time to talk on this episode of Decoder and thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. You can also email us at decoder at We love hearing from you. If you liked this episode of Decoder, please share it with your friends, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It is produced by Sophie Erickson and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode of Decoder. We'll talk to you then.